So we're in this series, uh, and we're getting to the final topic within the series. You know we've looked at a lot of things regarding the Old Testament, but I've described it as slowly wading into the deep end of a very deep pool. We're at that really deep end right now. Our feet no longer touch the ground. We're going to be talking tonight about some of the most violent descriptions in the Old Testament, the ones that trouble people the most. And we've got to do it in a couple pieces. So to use the pool analogy a little bit further, we're going to take a deep breath. We're going to hold our breath, go underwater and look around for a while and come back up, right? (laughs) That's what we're going to do tonight because uh, I just want us to get comfortable with the subject and this is how we're going to do it. So get ready. To frame this, if you don't like the pool analogy, what I want you to do is I'm going to read you three passages from Scripture because a lot of times we talk about the Old Testament problem or the Canaanite warfare images, and many of us maybe haven't actually focused exactly on what it is. So put yourself in this mindset. I'm going to read you three passages. I want you to pretend for a moment that you read the Old Testament and come across them. That could be a a valid pretend. Uh, Or that your friend comes up to you and says, I'm reading the scriptures and I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense to me. Or you know somebody who's really critical and likes to cite these kinds of things to show that God isn't who we say he is, let alone who he says he is. So just listen to these, and then I'm going to get your temperature on them. This is from the book of Joshua, chapter 11. I'm sorry, Joshua 10, 40 to 43. This describes the conquest of the southern Canaanite cities. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands, Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. If I could underline one, it would probably be he destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded. Here's a description in the next chapter, in chapter 11, verses 19 to 22. Here's a summary of those conquests of the northern cities. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy. As the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in the Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. Totally destroyed, exterminating them without mercy. That might be the phrase that would trip you up. Skipping ahead to Saul and his conquest during his kingdom, the first kingdom of Israel under a king. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go. Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. 
put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed, which would include children, apparently. Destroy children and infants. Those, no use keeping. So those are three passages that might lead us like this guy over here. <laughs> scratching our heads thinking, what is with all the destroy everything passages that we just read? And this is probably not an uncommon reaction. So let me stop there and say, what's your reaction? What do you feel emotionally when you hear these texts? How do you grapple with them? Are you ready to just say, I got an answer for that. Bring on the skeptic. Where are you on this? Yes. I've definitely had people, uh, they know that I'm Christian and they, they have an issue with this. The same things that come up when I say, you know, when I read the Bible, I have a really hard time reading these parts. And I don't, I don't ever have an answer for them. I'm just like, yeah, it is really confusing something that I personally am challenged by as well. Like I know that it's it's God's, like in, in that time it was what he wanted, but it's really hard to read emotionally. Okay, Andrew? Um, for me, it's, it's contextual. The time, the place, who's being destroyed, and reasons, and we don't know God's reasons for saying destroy that people. And it could be as simple as they waylaid against the Israelites and they were already killing their children and it wouldn't make any difference. I mean, here, the, the reason supplied, by the way. I mean, so we don't have to guess at the reason. Here, at least in this case, in the Amalekites, the, the answer is given. God says, I will punish them for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they come up from Egypt. If you don't know that reference, as God is bringing the Israelites out, out of Egypt through this miraculous exodus, these guys are waiting for them. And they just, they just rout them on the way. And that is something that the Lord remembers, that they did this to his people. What an evil act that you did to my chosen people. So there is a reason supplied. So if we're going to say it's contextual, at least let's say, let's take out of this passage directly what the reason is. Some of you may say, I don't know, that's enough. But at least we know what the text says the reason was. There's also the, the second part where they might also have the ability not to do something to get themselves completely destroyed. I mean, there are, there are times where they attacked the Amorites, and the Amorites' king brought in a foreseer and said, go talk to their god and tell him to bless me instead of his people. And three times he sent him, and three times God sent the guy back saying, you do this, you're going to die. You do this, he's going to kill everyone. You do this, everyone is going to die. And the king went, well, I'm not going to believe you. I'm going to do it anyways. And God said, okay, well, everyone dies. We don't know if in all these situations if God gave them chances of salvation. Okay. Anyone else? Heather? Sometimes, too, 
I think that utterly destroyed is a literary license because there are other passages where it says, except for these people, oh, and except for these people, and except for these people. So utterly destroyed may not be utterly destroyed. Yeah. Okay. Chris. The part that bothers me the most is verse 20 where it says, For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts. Because that to me speaks to a fear that we don't have a freedom of choice. And how does a child born to a... God put the child on the earth. So how is that child responsible for people's crimes? That's a very good question. And I think we'll probably end there. But I'm glad that you raised that from the beginning. Says that bothers you, Monique? Um, I not so long ago read through First and Second Samuel, and so I, I don't remember exactly the different stories because there's so many different examples of this throughout the books. Um, but you have to take the whole context, like the whole story, kind of into account as you're reading it, because there were certain places that I was reading through where, as I began, I didn't understand. And there were places where it said, like, and God hardened their, like, at the end of a story, it was like, someone was talking about war, and they're like, well, God, but why are these people coming against Israel, and you're allowing him to take me, and this and that, and God says, I've done this, this is part of my plan, like, basically, do you see how this king went to war with this king and this, and how he disgraced me, and now they've killed each other, so they've taken care of each other, and then he moved in a different way, and it was, like, really powerful, because when you look at the whole picture, you see how God's using people who maybe are already sinful, or doing, you know, whatever already, and it was actually comforting that his presence was there and that he's the one that sort of orchestrated it because you saw him bring justice like to his people and to what was right and to what was righteous through those acts so when you take it apart like singularly like oh he destroyed all the people without looking at the whole story and the whole like you know view of what's going on it's easy to get out of context and just say god has no heart or this is wrong or that you know Joseph. I know, at the same time you take it in context, when you put it that way, God sounds like the eternal puppet master in the sky playing his chess game with all the rest of us. He can. And I've had people bring that up. And I mean, it doesn't necessarily trouble me, but it does trouble a lot of people out there. I think that's right. Let me say this so that we're clear about what we're talking about. I picked these three because these are instances where we see God's direct action, not just where we're describing what Israel might have done. God seems like he's got his hands in it. His commanding or he's actually, you know, saying what's going on. The other thing is, there are plenty of times where we see just plain warfare in the Old Testament that are not as troubling as these passages because we don't see God saying, let's exterminate some people. So I'm picking these three, and some of the examples you push back with are not this type. You know, in a way, we kind of have to hold God up to almost a blameless record because people will say, if I can find one time when God does not act like God, then I've got something against him. So it's true that you could find 99 different times where the Israelites act on their own or when there is not this type of language used and we might be able to resolve those. And most of us go, yep, there was just a lot of warfare in the Old Testament. That's just the way society was. But these three trouble us more if you're paying close attention because it seems that these are in that 1% that really bothers about God. Now here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to see if there's a way we can answer some of this confusion by just shedding light on what's going on and see if these help. But before I do that, I want to take a quick poll. If you only had two choices in the universe, bothered or not bothered by these passages, bothered or not bothered, no, I know this is, you're going to come up with 19 different versions. This is X's. We could never get a straight binary poll, but you only have bothered or not bothered and non-voting will just, you'll fall through the floor. All right. So how many people are bothered by these passages? How many people are not bothered? 
Okay. Let me see if I can help some of the people, the people who are bothered. First of all, let's take a look at these. I'm going to ask you a bunch of does it make a difference questions. Does it make a difference that we're reading war narratives? Should we take that into account whenever we see these passages that bother us? For example, in Joshua 11, it says that no Anakites were left in Israel's territory. They were wiped out. The point here is many scholars believe that as you look at the Old Testament, there is a genre, a specific type of writing being used, which is wartime narrative. The best way to explain it in plain English is they exaggerated the point because it was the way that people spoke in the Near East when they spoke about warfare. Take a look at this exaggeration. No Anakites were left in the land. This is in Joshua 11. Later in Joshua 14, Caleb is asking, now give me the hill country that the Lord promised me this day. You yourself have heard that the Anakites were there. Wait a minute, I thought the Anakites were wiped out. How is Caleb coming back and saying, I'd like to take the land where the Anakites are? Probably means they weren't all wiped out. Because he's asking to go wipe them out again. So that he could have the land. I will drive them out just as he said. Caleb will drive them out. But I thought they were already driven out. And he repeats it again in Joshua 15 where you actually see him going to war against the, the Anakites to actually drive them out. Yes? Um, when they say no Anakites were left in Israel at Cherokee, were they referring to maybe the armies of the Anakites and their families that were accompanying them? We're going to talk about the armies in a moment, so hold the point because that's another factor we have to take into consideration. Okay. All right? Let me try another one just to show you how this wartime narrative works. Joshua 11 said he destroyed all who breathed. Right? And this is a sweeping description of the conquest of all the peoples of Canaan. This is not of a specific type of people. But later we find Joshua, as he's growing older, warning the people, don't associate with the nations that remain among you. And scholars really focus on this word that remain among you. He's talking about the people he supposedly routed, those people who are no longer breathing. Apparently, they're still breathing. In fact, they're going to cause a snare to the people. He says, don't invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. And the reason that's significant is accompanying all those destroy them passages is do not leave a single idol standing. So it seems that there's some people still breathing and there's some idols still there that will ensnare the people. Joshua even adds in later on, if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations, this is also Joshua 23, that remain among you. Or if you intermarry with them. So if he was really sweeping the land in the way that we've been taught in Sunday school with the flannel board, right? Where like he comes in, the walls come down, and they win, hoorah, right? Like if you see that, it's much more complicated. Actually, if you read all of Joshua, you'll see that you go, wait a minute, I thought we beat these people already. Maybe it's because there's so many ites in these books <laughs> that we kind of lose sight of who the ites are. But if you started drawing out a graph, you'd start to see that lots of them were still around. I get that point, but I think the problem comes from God says, kill everyone, don't leave any standing. So whether they actually did it, I mean, obviously in one of your examples, Saul did it. And so I left things there. In that God is saying, kill everyone is where the problem is. Not in the fact that stuff is, and gods are still standing and people are still breathing. When it says that 
they were destroyed. You're right. That's a very good response to this point. Jolene. See, and I was confused because I was thinking, well, it, it all depends on the definition of what everyone was. Now, was it everyone as in, like, like wipe out literally everyone, or was it everyone as in, like, one, like I said, the armies and their families that were accompanying them? All right, so let's keep going. Let's press forward because both of you are going to hang on to those points. Don't lose them, okay? Those are important points. Look at what Joshua 13.1. It says, when Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, you are now very old, and there's still very large areas of land to be taken over. The reason that's significant is because Joshua 11 and 12 summarize his complete conquest of the land. And then in Joshua 13, in the same scriptures, the Lord's saying to him, there's still much work to be done in conquering people. So you either have to say these people just did not know what they're writing from day to day, or you have to say that they were using language that we have to understand in the idiomatic expressions they were using or the genres they were using. Because it's not as clear as we would like to read it, whether it's in Hebrew or English. We just like to read it one way and go, aha, you see, he's a cruel God. He told him to do these things. Like, let's first understand what he asked. Yes. Doesn't that raise another point about the validity of what's being said? Because now someone can say, okay, if they exaggerate here, where else in the Bible is exaggerated? Those are two points. Hang on to both of them, okay? We're, we're headed there. Those are two very good points, and that's ex actually where we're going. All right, let me show you from Saul's time. This is not just a Joshua problem. This is the same thing in 1 Samuel. We see the same thing. Again, Saul was told all the people were totally destroyed by the sword. These are the Amalekites. All of them destroyed by the sword. This is the one where we got the children and, and infants and everybody else. What's weird is David later attacks the Amalekites. And he did not leave a man or woman alive. Now, wait a minute. If Saul killed everybody, how is it possible that David later gets to kill everybody? Unless it's a zombie movie, right? So that's not possible. In 1 Samuel 27, 8, that is what David is asked to do. Or actually, that's what David does. And then, and let me be clear. I, I shouldn't have said asked to do because this is not a passage where I see God's action coming in. So David attacks them. Kills all of them, by the way, second time. And then he fights them again in 1 Samuel 30. <laughs> After he kills all the women and children, he fights them one more time. The Amalekites in the scriptures are around 250 years later in 1 Chronicles 4.43. They're still around. And if any of you know the story of Esther and her arch enemy Haman, Haman in Esther chapter 3 is an Amalekite. He's a descendant of the Amalekites. So there's got to be something going on here. Either these guys are really, really bad at destroying everybody who breathes, or the way that that language is stated needs to be better understood. Yes, we still have the two issues that have been raised by Chris and also by Andrew. So let's leave those where they are. Would it make a difference to our thinking if we stopped using the word ethnic cleansing or genocide? Let me make some points about this because it might help us because these are such difficult words. When you use a word like ethnic cleansing or genocide, they're such emotionally charged words that you can't even have a discussion. It's like if I walked up to you and go, you're a racist. Uh, you're going to spend the whole time just going, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, like without even asking, well, what is the basis of the claim? Like, what is, what is it? What's the definition of that word mean? And why are you applying it to me? We live in a world, and by the way, I would say a 20th century and 21st century world that created these very emotionally charged words like genocide and ethnic cleansing, and for good reason. 
But I don't know that that reason applies to the time period we're looking at. I'm not even sure these were that ethnically distinct to begin with, or even, more importantly, that it was being done for that reason. So first, let's be careful of the words, because somebody who wants to critique Christianity loves words like this, because they're so charged that you almost win by just using the word. And we shouldn't allow that. That's cheating. It's cheap argument. These things do have a precise definition. Actually, we define them in the 20th century after periods of time like the Armenian Genocide or the Holocaust. We define them. This is an area where I can actually speak as somebody who knows because I spent a lot of time in law school studying war crimes law and genocide law. And I actually understand what these words mean and what they're defined as. And I can tell you, looking back at what's happening here, that is not what's going on. But it's an easy word to use. So I think we just lean to learn to go, I just reject the label. Hey, it might be horrible. I might be troubled by it. But let's use precise language. Let's not just say whatever we want to say because it sounds like we could win. The truth is Israel never attacked anyone just because of a racial reason, an ethnic reason, even because they wanted to. In these passages, God was supplying the reason and telling him to do it. And if you want proof of that, every time Israel acted on its own, it didn't do very well. It lost. Even when God says, carry out the ark and you'll route them and they do that, and then they decide, let's do that on our own. Let's just take the ark out and see how this thing works. They lose it. It gets taken over by the other side. Uh, because they're not acting under his authority or his command. Yes, I know we might still be troubled by why God commands in the first place, but we should at least be aware of what's happening here. Last point on this. If you're going to make a charge of ethnic cleansing, you have to remember that the law clearly protected the foreigner. The law clearly was set up. It was radical in its change to actually say that those among you must be protected. So it's very hard to say that God was acting in favor of one nation, somehow racially motivated, ethnically motivated, saying go exterminate a different people. When actually what he said is, when a foreigner resides among you in the land, do not mistreat them. That's part of the law. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Heck, we don't even do that in our country. Before we start wagging the finger back at those people, and look, look how barbaric they are. We can't even do that today. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's the exclamation point that says, do this. Obey me. I'm the Lord. I'm not kidding around. Treat foreigners the right way. Uh, so you could say, well, then why are we kicking out all these people out of the land? God supplies the reason. Most of the time, it's because I don't want you to come in contact with the harmful practices that they have. Some of them even included child sacrifice or just the idols that they have. We are betrothed together. We are betrothed. I'm your God. You're my people. I want you to live in a place that's not going to be tempted with these snares. That's one of the reasons given. The other one is, of course, that many of these people had done such evil in God's sight that he announced he was going to do this. You have problems, have it with God. I don't think this was Israel acting to say we'd love to just go after these people because they look a little different than us. Does it make a difference that civilians may not have been killed, which is what Jolene has been pushing towards? Would that change your thinking about these things? I know we read language that seems to imply that they were there, but here's the couple of points just to raise. One of the most popular ones that we know about is Jericho. But 
most people think if you look at Jericho and Ai and you look at other Canaanite cities, the cities that were referred to as cities in our scripture, they were likely fortresses. They were likely to be kind of armored places where soldiers and the kings and maybe some of the priests were. They were not where the people lived. Most of the people probably lived in the rural areas around it. In other words, they were kind of the places where you would fight against. Archaeologists believe that that's the best understanding as they dig in these cities because they don't find much evidence of life. Some of you might remember the story of the spies who crawl up and Rahab saves them. And like, well, there were some people living there. Right. But those same people who would say that there's probably not regular people living in the cities would say that Rahab was probably somebody operating a tavern. For strangers only. For people coming to these cities, these fortress cities. One interesting perspective I read was there is no way you could march seven times around a city and attack it the same day and win unless it's a pretty small city. Meaning that not everybody who lived in Jericho lived in the city. That was just the fortress. That's where the soldiers were. And all the rest of the people lived where you could eat food, which is where people were farming and living in the rural areas around it. So maybe when they completely destroy a city like Jericho, what they're talking about is not civilians. And I underline the word may, because I don't want to tell you that's the answer. Stick the flag in it and say, aha. That's where the evidence points. But we don't know for sure. Because none of us were around to really know what was happening in that battle, and it's not recorded for us. But at least it might make you feel a little bit more comfortable. What about the fact that they keep using words like children and infant and, and, and women and children, those kinds of words. Like those people are reported to be among the people commanded to be killed. Again, that might be the idiomatic expression of the time, or it might be more of that bravado that comes with these wartime narratives. It still leaves the two problems we have on the floor, which is, well, doesn't that mean the scriptures are written in some expression that might always have a different meaning? Or what about God being the one who speaks these words? Doesn't he know what he's saying? Or is he also using wartime narrative? Those questions are still open. Morgan. Are you saying with, I mean, because I understand the idiomatic expressions, and I've heard some of this before, but I'm wondering <clears throat> how far does that go when you say women and children? I mean, so any women and children? You know, if you're, if you're making this argument to somebody, they're going to say, so does that mean nothing? You know, what does that mean? Does that mean the... Uh, Possibly the families of the military. I mean, it doesn't, does it indicate something? Or, or are you trying to say it just means absolutely nothing? Yeah, that's why I, I still use the word may, because I don't even know that this is the strongest argument. It's an argument that's made. If you were to ask me just, you know, what do I know? But if you're just going to ask me where I feel about this subject, I'd say, yes, I do believe that some women and children were still killed. And that's why I'm going to that point to talk about what it means that that happened. So... I can't say that this argument, even if you accept it fully, would say only soldiers were killed. I'm just saying, does it make us feel more comfortable, though? Because maybe in your mind, in your flannel graph world of Sunday school that you remember, what happened was everybody who was nice and cool was living in Jericho, and one day they just woke up and the walls fell in on them, right? <laughs> and, and we were thinking in terror, like, oh my god, like, like a kid was playing in the street, you know, and they were playing jump rope, and the walls just fell in on them. And that was what we were imagining. And I'm just saying, would it make you feel any better if it was true, and it may very well be, that these were actually kind of fortresses, not so much the cities that we would imagine. Let me press forward. 
Does it make a difference that the people knew of God's action? What do I mean by that? You know, a lot of times what we're envisioning is these people didn't have a chance. I mean, you know, like, really, they didn't have any way of knowing God, and they were just summarily executed, if that's really what the narratives are actually saying. So just some things to just think about. None of these resolve the issue completely. Again, we're just holding our breath, looking underwater, seeing what's around. There are people who acknowledge God and were spared, so that there was at least an indication that that could happen. The, the, most, the one we just talked about was Rahab, who rescued the spies, but it wasn't just because she rescued the spies. Her speech to the spies is, I've heard of your God. We've all heard what he's done. We know he's the one true God. Like This was not just like, hey, let's just come to a, a mutual, just convenient thing here where I can help you, and I see the army coming. She was talking about God as well as what he was doing. She knew that the reason Israel was so strong was because of God. Even the Gibeonites, if you don't know them, they were one of the peoples that came to Israel and tricked them, tricked the Israelites into making a peace treaty because they knew that was the only way they could get by was to make a peace treaty by tricking them. But again, the evidence seems to point to the fact that it's because they knew what was going on. And I don't mean that they just looked out on the horizon and saw Israel coming. It was because they had heard of what God was doing with Israel and thought, I think we better just, you know, do the French salute here and raise our hands and surrender, you know? <laughs> this, this podcast not heard in France. <laughs> what we see is evidence that people knew what God had done in Egypt. The Canaanites were aware of what God was doing and that he had parted the Red Sea for his people. These are actually specifically cited. Like we've heard of the plagues. We've heard of what he did to the mighty kingdom of Egypt. We've heard of how he parted the sea and brought you through. So again, does it tweak your thinking in any way? When you're sitting there thinking, well, how are they supposed to know God? How could he judge them? They don't even have a chance. What do you think about that? It was possible to make peace. While God did not command it, it did happen. And some people, and I don't put a lot of stock in this, but at least you should know all the possible arguments that are out there. Some people believe the very purpose of marching around Jericho seven times was to actually give them a chance on seven different days to find out what was about to happen. I, I don't know that I buy that one, but there does seem to be some indication that this was more than just a parade. Maybe it was a way for God to miraculously defeat these people in a way that would not be forgotten. But if that's the case, then everybody would have heard of that too. And since Jericho is one of the first in that category, you'd think the word of that probably spread everywhere. This is a God that has power. So you have a chance to know him. I'm forgetting the story, but isn't there even uh, between kings, I'm, I'm believing there's a story where they're conversing with each other, knowing that Israel is on the way and still decide to oppose them as opposed to Sure, and they actually make they actually say, Come and help me do this, right? We see that power even in Numbers 22, where Balaam is called in by Balak, the, the head of the Moab Midianites. He says, I want you to pronounce a curse on these people because it's clear what they're about to do. Why would you bring in a spiritual shaman of sorts, a prophet of sorts, to curse people if what you're really trying to do is fight them in battle. It's either because you think that's your only prayer because they're just so big and they're coming at you, but more likely because you think their God is with them. Like this is, this is true what is happening. So again, you might not be thinking that everybody just suddenly raised their hand and said the sinner's prayer when they saw that, but at least it gives it a shot that they know. Is our real problem women and children? 
Let me just ask this question. Is that part of the issue for us? Would we be okay if God had said, go into that fortified city over there, and I want you to wipe out every, you know, every whatever-ite, all the males would be okay if that was it? Is there any part of us emotionally that connects the idea of like women and children somehow adds to it? Does it make God seem more problematic to us when he's slaughtering children and infants? This one might not solve anything for me, but I want to give you a couple points and then hear from you on them. Just questions, actually. Do we believe that God can judge anyone at any time and bring about their death as a result? Maybe another way to say it is, are you someone who counts on the fact that God's judgment is once and once only and it's in the afterlife? Does not God have the right to judge anyone at any time for what they've done and bring about their death, whether in his people, which we've seen already, or outside? Whether in the old covenant or even as we talked about in the new, at the very beginning of the church when Ananias and Sapphira both dropped dead? Because I think somehow there's a subtle feeling sometimes we have that, no, God can't do that, or God shouldn't do that, or I don't want God to do that. I want to settle the score later. I don't want to see the immediate effect of my sin in this life because I define mercy this way. I get a lot of time to do whatever I want. And only later we'll settle the score. And hopefully by then I've said the right words that all that will be forgiven. Doesn't God have the right to do that now in this room? Do we believe that people cannot know God unless they've gone to some Greg Laurie Harvest Crusade? Is that really the definition of knowing God for those of us who are troubled by knowing God? Like those people didn't even have a chance. They didn't have a chance to know him. What does it really mean? Is it enough that they know of his power, know that he's real, know that he's behind these people? Is it enough? Or as Paul would remind us in Romans 1, isn't it enough that we can see God's invisible qualities in the world so that since the beginning of creation, we are without excuse, he says. And he goes on and on and on. Read Romans 1. He makes it very clear that we are without excuse, but we chose, despite seeing all the evidence that God is there, we chose to be wicked, to sin, to live these kinds of lives and to be given over to the results of our own sin. So are we actually arguing when we have problems with this that somehow these people could never have known? When Paul makes the case very strongly that by the evidence of creation, by God's qualities in the world, maybe even by what we commonly understand, when we see morality take place in places that don't know God the way we do, in quotes, that somehow those qualities are still there. That God's truth is still in the world somehow. Even if you believe that we all came, all of us, all peoples, all places, we originally came from the garden. Or we were all descendants of the people that got off the ark who dealt with God. Don't we all have a common beginning at some point where God was firmly communicating with humanity? That we should have those shards of truth still somewhere as Romans 1 says, we're without excuse. Or are we saying, no, no, no. You have to actually have a copy of the scriptures and you have to have time to think about it and time to know and time to make a decision before anything can happen to you. Do we believe that? I don't think any of us really believe that. 
That goes one step deeper, or I'm going to kind of put a pause on it tonight, is this question, because I'd like to hear from you what you think. Do you believe that children have to be given the chance to make their own decisions about who they're going to worship and how they'll act before they're judged? If it's true that God said, go into that town, and I want you to kill everyone, including children and infants. And I want you to assume that all the other things I said just turn out to be wrong. That is what God actually commanded because he thought that that whole city was wicked and everyone is going to be killed. I think what sometimes really causes us to stop and stumble is, hey, wait a minute. How can those kids be responsible? Anyone want to respond to that one? Because I think that one really gets us. Yeah. I think... If we believe that God is who he is, like God and all-knowing and all this, whatever, outside of time, and et cetera, et cetera, then he knows what the decisions would have been ultimately. He knows. If I let you live 100 years, exactly what you would do with that life and what that would look like. So it's like I just think he knows ahead of time. Okay. Chris. That, that scares me, though, because <laughs> I have a five-year-old, okay? So... Um, thinking what he knows about the world and what I know about the world are vastly different and his maturity level is less and I mean if if it's really true then why be created at all I mean if you're gonna spend a day a month in the world merely to die and spend an eternity in hell what's the point okay David um, well one of the things I was thinking especially with you know children that are raised in an environment just like we're raised in, like for those of us raised in Christian homes, we're raised to believe this. Where it's like for me, I've never gone to a Muslim church or anything. That's where this is really all I know. And I obviously I've studied other religions and stuff, but you know, it's like for these children, this is the environment that they've grown up in. Where I have a hard time believing that God would say, you know, what, kill them. I know they're going to hell because we don't really know once they've died if they're if they go to heaven or hell. And I don't mean to bring up a controversial topic, but. You know, we don't know if, like, when we get to heaven, you know, if, if someone dies at the age of four or 52, you know, if we're, you know, going to be given a second chance, you know, to be won over by God's love or, you know, like, we don't really know. So for me, I kind of get a little bit of comfort in, in not really knowing, like, that they went to hell or went to heaven. And I want to just pause right there and say, I don't know that any of God's judgment that I'm speaking about that's happening in, the, in our time where people are dying is resulting in somebody going to hell. Well, there's multiple layers to this question. One is, what happened to people before Christ, right? That was always a question that people debate. What happens to children, which is another question that people debate. So we're like stacking on things that we cannot know. So I'd like for this conversation just for a moment to go where you guys did, which is say, I don't know. And stick to what do you think about God just killing that child in judgment, right? As opposed to judging where they ultimately end up. Like the issue that we're dealing with here, if possible, is God is giving a command and assuming, and it is because all the other things I said could change it, but assuming that he is saying go and kill that child, every child and every infant, and only in this life we're talking about right now, how does that make you feel in this way? You're going this way, uh, yes, Heather. I mean, I guess it'd be different if it was my child, but just from theologically thinking about it, it's kind of a blessing because I'd rather have my whole family wiped out than have my two-year-old have to fend for itself and, you know, like, be raised the whole time thinking that there's something wrong with them because both their parents were killed and everyone else around them was killed. And, and also, I 
just think that, like I've said before, we make too much of death because we don't know. Like, we, we see it as the ultimate punishment, but God might not see it that way. Okay. All right, going back the other way. Monique? Yeah, like about the heaven or hell thing, like, I don't think it's a question of that at all. And I think so we just need to kind of take that out of our thoughts. We don't think it's like, oh, he killed that innocent two-year-old and now they're going to hell. Like, I don't, we don't know. Like, ultimately, we don't know what the judgment after that looked like. God made a decision based on those people living on this earth, based on things that were going on on earth at that time for a specific reason. And as far as like a five-year-old and where their knowledge of life is versus a 30-year-old and where their knowledge of life is, that's your knowledge, not God's knowledge. And I don't think God... I don't think God would look at that life and judge a two or five-year-old based on maybe just those five years they lived. <clears throat> Again, it's the big picture, and I hate to use this example because it's so cliche, but like Hitler was a two-year-old once too. You know what I mean? Like we don't know like where that life would end up. But my point is that God does know where every life will end up. And so when he makes those decisions, it's a whole perspective that we can't possibly have. Okay, go this way. Anyone? Cormac, you got a comment? Well, I was just going to say, um, connecting with someone has said that I don't think that, like, when God um, tells the Israelites to wipe out these people, and including women and children, I don't think there's pronouncing judgment on them as individuals, necessarily, like, especially on the children. I don't think he's having them kill the children because of something they did. It's something that that nation did collectively, and it's in a time of war, like, people can say, I don't think God used Israel as a tool to go do whatever he wants. I mean, he commanded Abraham to kill his son. And that wasn't because he was such a bad son. You know, like, he commanded to have God change, you know, not decide to stop, he would have died. Is that because he would have led the popular side? No. I mean, it's just like the decision that God is using, I feel, as a way to train, not train, I think those people, though, who are probably getting killed while he was training his other people were probably thinking, this is, couldn't there be a better training camp than having him kill us? <laughs> like, I mean, this is an awfully uh, expensive way to train your people <laughs> in faith, um, you know, and to make sure they do what you want. But that's the charge that would come back. I, the other problem that I've heard when I try and defend this in the larger sense of the Bible is that People will attack, okay, well, this just sounds like, you know, divine intervention for the person writing the history. So, oh, God commanded me to go kill these people to take their land. Not that the person wanted to take their land and then justified it with God. So, you know, that that's the other attack that I still don't know if I can defend based on what we've heard already. Because it seems that you could make that assertion that, you know, you don't know if the other people would have won what they would have wrote. Yeah, the only thing I would give you back on that, and that is a good inquiry to go into, we have to kind of maybe cover next week. One of the things you have to think of is, it would be kind of weird, though, to be writing scriptures where God is telling you to go attack a bunch of people so you can have their land, and then you're writing similar scriptures where God is attacking you through other people and taking you out of the land. Um, and that, I think, is, you see it happening both ways. Judah and Israel both are routed out of the land, and the prophets tell them this is going to happen to you. In fact, if you look at the scriptures... God actually ends up acting against his own people because of their disobedience way more than he does against other nations. So if you were writing kind of a victor's justice type of narrative where I wanted to do this and God's my justification, right? You'd also be having to write about the how many times did your God go against you 
for all the things you did wrong. And I think that's a very important balance that we get that gives us a little bit of confidence that it isn't just written from one side. These people really believed it to the point that as they're marching out in captivity, they're like, oh, this is what God said was going to happen and look, it happened to us, right? And if you thought they were just going to write it the way they'd want to, they'd say, no, it must be some other force, right? It can't be that God's allowed this to happen. Yes? I think it's interesting when the same stories that pop up are God, you know, my justification is God told me to, but numerous stories come out of Saul or David going out and attacking a people, attacking a group, attacking a city, and losing horribly because they thought they should or because they thought it was the best thing and they thought God wanted them to. And so there are numerous stories where they do that. The critics of Christmas item, though, would come back and say, yeah, and then they wrote the ones they won as God was behind them, and then they wrote the ones they lost as, like, I went out without him. And that would be pretty good evidence for some critics if that was all we found. But to see that God is acting against his own people when he tells them, don't do this, don't do this, oh, you did it, all right, now I have to do this, which I promised you way back here, across all these different books, by the way. I mean, this is happening across all genres and all books. This whole narrative comes together. It's not just like in, in the Pentateuch. It's like all across the scriptures we see this theme. It'd be hard for all those people to get together and conspire that this is the way we're going to tell the story, right? Especially since there's a lot of time between them and it works both ways. Let me just close our discussion this way because I think now we can all come up and breathe for a moment and we'll continue next week. You know, some archaeologists would probably tell you that they don't have to be God to know what those children would have done. Just think about this for a moment. If you're living in these times that we're talking about where you don't get to go to youth group on your own without your parents and find faith all by yourself... Uh, whatever your parents do, that's what you do. Whatever your parents believe, that's what you believe. Uh, we weren't living in times where you just kind of travel around different cities and go, hey, what do you guys believe? Uh -huh. What do you guys believe? Like, that doesn't happen. I could pretty much tell you with confidence what these people would believe, what their practices would be, and they would be remarkably similar to their parents. I just want to give you that to think about as well, because a lot of us think we don't know what kids would do. Maybe today, uh, I could tell you that back here, I feel like after reading what I did, I have a high degree of confidence that I could tell you what they were going to do. And so if your only trouble is we didn't give them enough life for God to pronounce the kinds of judgment on these people, if that's what he was doing, and there's a lot of ifs we looked at earlier, I still think that we have to look at a God who is holy enough to know, to understand, to judge, to create, and to do as he pleases, and that is very important because I said one of the major goals of this series was not just to answer critics about difficult passages in the Old Testament. It was for our concept of God to grow even larger. To actually be able to see God in his holiness at such a level that even the most difficult thing remains difficult. I'm not saying you're going to walk out here going, wow, that was awesome that happened. But you're going to look at how even the most difficult things in life, God is still who he says he is. And he's still holy. And he's still righteous. And he is still a just judge who can do these things and remain God. It takes a lot of growth for us to be able not to cringe at a passage like this, but to look at it and peer in it and say, I am still troubled. Just as many Old Testament figures who argued and wrestled with God all throughout the Psalms 
and asked searching questions, but then continued to affirm his holiness and his greatness and their love for him. Can we do the same? Okay, we're up. Breathe. We'll come back next week and try to see if we can dive a little deeper on the second dive. See if it helps us to resolve some of these issues. Let me pray for us. God, I acknowledge before you, I confess before you that it's pure silliness to expect that the humble words that we've offered here tonight are somehow going to be adequate to even look at the width, the breadth, the depth of who you are. That any of the words that we have could actually capture who you are. And so repeatedly in this series, Lord, we've praised you and thanked you for the fact that you allow your children even to ask these questions. That you entertain us just in our own silliness and being able to understand that throughout the ages you have tolerated those who have questioned, who have ached, who have searched, even who have been angry, Lord. And you have dealt with us lovingly with mercy and grace. And Lord, even as we look around this world and we see things that are not fair and we look around at the scriptures and we see things that we don't understand, give us faith despite all of those things to see you as a holy, just pure God, and worthy of all worship, give us that extra measure of faith. We pray in your name for not only our sake, but all those who we come into contact with who are aching to know these things. Pray this in your name. Amen.